0: Yo, what's going on, everyone? Before we get on with the episode today, I wanted to give a quick shout-out to the Missing the Point podcast. They're a new podcast based on an award-winning radio show covering all sports, including niche sports like MMA and the WWE, six-man team with varying perspectives and wild arguments, and they recently interviewed NFL Rules Analysis and former Vice President of Officiating Dean Blandino. If you want to hear people take sports too seriously, but in a fun way, listen to Missing the Point podcast right now. Now let's get on with today's episode. What's going on, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Quarantine Football. As always, my name is Dorian, one of your co-hosts, and today I have a very special guest with me, A lot of you may know him from coaching, whether you're watching this on YouTube or read the title, you know who's with me. Today, I have former Browns head coach, Hugh Jackson. How are you doing today, coach? Doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Very excited for this interview. Great. Yes, sir. So I just want to hop right into the questions. So how did you decide that you wanted to be a football coach? (laughs) Well, I think um, a lot of people uh, told me that I
1: was a leader a lot, you know, in my career. People always said, Hugh, you've got great leadership skills, uh, you have a way of galvanizing people together, um, maybe one day you'll be a coach. I never thought that that was going to be the case, I thought I'd be an FBI agent, and uh, one one day, i never forget, in high school, we had lost our head coach, he had resigned to go to another school, so for about a month period of time, I kind of became the coach. So I would organize practices, um, you know, make sure that everybody showed up and um, and started to understand the process of really what a team looks like, what it takes to put a team together, uh, while also trying to play quarterback. At that time, it was it was a lot of fun. So I think that's what kind of started me down this road of coaching, and it, it's been fun ever since.
0: Would you say that because of your upbringing, it basically translates to the way that you played quarterback as well as um, what people may say as a quarterback whisperer?
1: Yeah, that could be. Um, Like you said, I mean, that's what I was, that's what I played. That's what I knew. That's what I was around. But I had to learn it. I'd be the first to tell you that um, that process started for me when I started coaching at the University of Pacific. Uh, John Gruden came in. uh, We would grind every night, put put me on the board, teach me what it was like really to be a, a coach. And uh, that's where I grew the most.
0: You mentioned um, being at Pacific, but you've coached at a lot of other places as well, including Cal State, Arizona State, USC. And on the NFL level, you've coached in Washington, Cincinnati, um, Atlanta, Baltimore, Oakland, and Cleveland. Now that, that's a huge resume and that's awesome. Which destination would you say was probably your favorite of all the destinations you've been to? It was probably Oakland
1: because uh, the fans were um, really into the football team. Um, and I thought it was a tremendous opportunity for me. I was a coordinator there. We weren't, they wasn't very good on offense. So we took an offense that was 31st and went to six. And then the next year I became the head coach there working for our iconic owner in Al Davis. So I really enjoyed being there. Uh, but all of those stops that you mentioned all had some, some real good memories to them as well. So I really, I understood why I did what I did going to so many different places, but this what led me to having the opportunities that I did have.
0: So you don't know this, but one of our co-hosts, Nate, he's actually a Raiders fan. So he was excited when um, we got the opportunity to get you on. So he wanted to know, what was it like working with that Raiders offense? You had Darren McFadden go for a huge season. And um, what, what was your experiences like in Oakland? It was a lot of fun. You know, I, I like I said, it was the first time
1: that I had total command of the offense. And uh, like I said, they were 31st. Uh, we had some very talented players. All I try to do is put those guys in position to make plays. And that's what they did. You mentioned Darren McFadden, Marcel Reese, you know, Jacoby Ford. We had a whole bunch of very talented men that just needed some direction and, and be given an opportunity to showcase their talent and ability, and I was able to do that, and great things happened.
0: Definitely, it was a it was a huge season and a huge time. the The Raiders, who throughout my lifetime haven't been the best team, you know, mm-hmm. you went eight and eight as head coach. What what was that feeling like with all those fans and having having a season like you did?
1: Uh, well, it was, it was bittersweet. It was uh, good because it seems like we were building on what we were doing. Uh, but it was disappointing because I thought we left uh, something out there. You know, we were seven and four. Uh, after 11 games, all we needed to do was win a couple more to make the playoffs for the first time since 2002, host a home playoff game, and we didn't get it done. We scored 26 points on offense, but we couldn't slow this, uh, the San Diego Chargers they were at that time down on defense. And we end up losing the game. So it was a tremendous opportunity that we just didn't nail down. So that was disappointing.
0: But, um, you know, you've mentioned multiple times you were a coordinator and you've also been a position coach. How did that help? How did being a position coach and then eventually an offensive coordinator help you advance your career? You've gotten the opportunity to work with T.J. uh, Hushman Zada, and mm-hmm. Chad Johnson, who a lot of people know as Chad Ochocinco, as well as Terrell Pryor, Darren McFadden, and a lot of other uh, guys that you've been their position coach. How, mm-hmm. did, how did being their position coach help you advance your career? Well, I would say those
1: players really helped me because they were my mouthpiece. The way they played was my resume, you know, so I got a chance to kind of ride on their on their backs to kind of get to where I needed to go. But that's what I was alluding alluding to, I should say earlier, all the different stops are what put me in a position to eventually coach the quarterback, get an opportunity to be the play calling offensive coordinator. I'd had that title before as the office coordinator, but wasn't the play caller. So uh, that's what people don't understand is because you have that title, don't mean that that's what the actual job is. So it's been tough. Uh, It's tough for minorities, even still today. Um, this is the 100-year history of the league, and there's only been 18 minority head coaches in all of the 100 years. So that, that tells you how hard it is. And then couple that with, you know, those, the guys who get chances normally come from quarterback. They come from being coordinators, and there's only two quarterback coaches in the National Football League right now. There's only two minority offensive coordinators in the National Football League right now. So it was really tough, uh,
0: but at the same time, very rewarding. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was actually one of my questions I wanted to ask. Being named a head coach as a minority um, twice at, for the Oakland Raiders as well as for the Cleveland Browns, what did that mean to you? Well, it means that at one
1: time I was one of the best and um, uh, I earned that. You know, my dad wasn't a coach or anything like that. I, I worked my way up and that's what I was alluding to, the moves that I had to make strategically to put myself in position because I saw that the head coaching opportunities were going to guys who had the quarterback background. So I knew I had to get in that room and stay in that room and coach that position in order to have the chance to ascend. And uh, that's what I set out to do.
0: So as, as a coordinator, as a head coach, and even as a quarterback's coach, We've, we've seen, and a lot of the media has referred to you as a quarterback whisperer or a quarterback guru. Is that, is that something that, you know, you listen to or is that, you know, something that you took pride in at all? Well, no, I took pride in it because I, I think that's what gave, got me the opportunities,
1: uh, being able to coach those guys and having them play well. Uh, but it also could be your downfall because if you don't have a quarterback, <laughs> then it doesn't work as well. Uh, then all of a sudden, the quarterback whisper and the guru goes out the window. You just the old just football coach. You just the same old average guy as everybody else. And people forget the other things that you did prior to being in some of the situations you've been in. But uh, like I said, at the end of the day, it's, it's all been good uh, football, uh, especially professional football and college football has been great to me, my family. So I'm very thankful and, and very grateful.
0: I wanted to get your opinion on the transformation that we're seeing in the NFL today. We, when I was growing up, it was a lot of, like, Tom Brady had just gotten drafted the year I was born, actually. You know, Peyton Manning was in the league. We, we saw a lot of those pocket-passing quarterbacks, and every once in a while, we saw Michael Vick. Now, it's a lot more common to see a running quarterback or a mobile quarterback rather than a pocket-passing quarterback. What are your thoughts on the way that the league is kind of transforming in that sense? I think you said it. I think everything's evolving.
1: You know, I think um, the players in college, they're so talented. Um, and if you can coach them in the national football league and let them add value to your organization by doing what they do um, and showcasing their talent and ability, you have a chance to win a lot of games. I mean, I, just like you're saying, you think of what Kyler Murray's doing right now, Russell Wilson you know, uh, Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, um, some of the best quarterbacks in the National Football League right now are men of color. Um, the GOAT is still the GOAT. Tom Brady is still the best ever in my mind. But at the same time, these young guys are really starting to ascend and change the National Football League game.
0: I know i personally gotten a little bit of flack because I was one of the Tom Brady haters for a while until I couldn't <laughs> say it anymore. I was like, all right, Tom Brady's the GOAT. There's no arguing that.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. It, it, was, it was a bit of a tough battle. It, once he got that fifth Super Bowl, I was like, ah, yeah, I've got I've to it.
1: give it to him. Yes.
0: Yeah. But, you know, as, as a coach, what, what do you say, like, is your relationship with players? Would you say you're a players coach or a straight, straight down to business coach?
1: I think, I think all that stuff's overrated, in my opinion. I, I think I'm a people's coach. At the end of the day, um, this is a still a people's business. you got to interact with people, deal with people, lead people. So I think because I spend more time or dig into a player a little bit more than maybe some others and don't make it just about business, people get labeled as player's coach. But that's just my nature. I want to know who I'm coaching, know more about them so that I know what bus- buttons to push to get them to be the best version of themselves. And I think a lot of coaches um, are that way. They won't say that, you know, because everybody wants the coach to be the yeller, or the hard guy and this and that. And there's a time for that too. But at the end of the day, you have to uh, have that player believe in you just as you need to believe in him in order for him to be uh, successful.
0: I think that was one of my favorite things. Um, just watching you as a casual fan um, watching you as a head coach because every press conference I saw, everything, you just seemed so genuine. You came off as a genuine guy as if you, you really believed what you were thinking. I'm sure you did. Well, I thank you for saying that because a lot of people didn't think I was very genuine. There's always a group that think you're not and there's
1: a group that think you are. I believe, I know I was very genuine in, in how I approach things and always would be because I think that's the only way you could be. You can't stay up stand up in front of a room and be a phony all the time. I mean, you just can't do it. So I've been in front of a lot of rooms. And so I want, I know without question that players see the genuine side of me and know I am who I am.
0: Yeah. And, um, I think that uh, from the conversations I've had with other players, you know, it's, it's huge to have a head coach that, you know, you can trust. Oh, absolutely.
1: I think that's And that's important. I mean, and and it goes both ways. You know, I think people say that the players just got to be able to trust the coach, but the coach got to be able to trust the players too. It goes both ways. And as long as you build that um, type of environment and that type of culture, then great things happen. When you don't, they don't happen as well.
0: For sure. So I want to talk about the Cleveland Browns, of course. Okay. So the record wasn't necessarily the best. But for, from me, again, being a casual fan, I, the Browns were really competitive th- during your time as a head coach. I, I remember the 0-16 season or the 1-15 season, actually. The, the win was on Christmas Day. I know as, I'm not even a Browns fan, and I was excited to see the, see the, um, the field goal get missed because I was like, oh, the Browns finally. Like, it, it was exciting. How, yeah. What was the mood in the locker room right after that game? It was um, joyous. I mean, obviously, the guys have worked extremely hard. Uh,
1: You work at it every week. You don't make it happen, and that's hard. I keep telling people people are not built to lose. People are built to win. And so uh, to finally have an opportunity as an organization football team fans to witness winning uh, meant a lot to everybody. That did to me, did to uh, every player, everybody in the organization. It was a great night that night.
0: And, you know, go, going forward, the, the Browns actually, you know, you, you were able to get a ton of guys that are balling out now. You've got Baker Mayfield. You managed to get um, guys that may not necessarily be there anymore, like Jabril Peppers, but they're having amazing careers. Miles Garrett, another guy. What, what was the mood in the locker room when these guys were drafted? That change was coming, you know, that
1: eventually – um, the team would really start to turn the corner because you just named some very good players and uh, teams win because they have good players. They have great leadership. Uh, they create uh, unbelievable culture. Uh, the coaches uh, buy in uh, to what the vision is. The players buy into the vision and great things happen. But in order to have the vision and buy in, you have to have good players
0: on your side, especially to win games in the national football so here here's here's my follow-up question. As a coach, do you believe in all the analytics because me personally I I can't stand analytics. I I, I don't like I don't like them. I think some, sometimes you see on some of the networks, you know, they get really specific. It'll be like, "Oh, this person is this age and they threw this many touchdowns." And I I'm I'm like, "Okay, you're getting a little too specific." Well, I think, uh, I personally just, don't like
1: it. But. Yeah, you
0: just know it. I think uh,
1: analytics don't have a heartbeat, you know, and they, they can't talk to you. It's, it's numbers and it's people putting numbers in and people got to put in the right number. And I think people have to understand you make one mistake and put in a wrong number, then everything's wrong. You know, so I think, uh, I like the old tried and true Not that I don't like analytics. I think there's a place for it, but I think, uh, that's why you have coaches. They have experiences, they have experience, uh, whether it's drafting players, coaching players, whatever that is, I uh, for different situations. And you have to trust that because they've been doing it over time. Uh, again, I know the computer is the faster way to do it, but it's not always the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, like there was, um, I believe with the DeAndre Hopkins catch that, that went viral on the internet, I think someone said there was like a 30-something percent chance of the catch <laughs> being. I was like, okay. But you have to take the human factor into it. Absolutely,
1: the player, the guy himself. If the ball is there, he's going to make a play, and he's shown that, you know, throughout his career.
0: So as as time goes on in the NFL, you know, I noticed something that you posted on your Instagram, and you said, "I will be back better than ever." Believe this. So is this alluding we may see a Hugh Jackson return to the NFL? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the plan. I, I want to go back and reclaim my
1: spot among the elite coaches. Um, I know I can coach offense with anybody. At one time, I was talked about as one of the, the most uh, innovative offensive coaches. And then all of a sudden, you know, that goes away. People forget that that's who you were. Um, so I want to go back and reclaim my spot, get back to, to winning and helping someone win and, and go from there.
0: So, again, I... I... I want to go back to the Browns because, again, like we said, that that was a huge that was a huge portion in a lot of our listeners' like recent memories, and you know the 2015 season was a, was a little bit or 20 2017 2018 re- season was a little rough. There was a lot of quarterback issues between just injuries and you know just inconsistent play. Now you had a guy on your roster in Terrell Pryor. What was it like for him to go from wide receiver to quarterback? And did you ever think about going through those issues with the quarterback through injuries and everything? Did you think that it was a possibility that he could play quarterback? Oh, absolutely. I wanted him to. If you go back to the Miami game in
1: 2016, his jersey is in the Hall of Fame because he played quarterback and receiver and had over 100 yards passing and 100 yards receiving. So Terrell Pryor is a special player, but Terrell Pryor saw himself as a receiver that's what he wanted to do. Uh, I didn't want to take that away from him. I thought he could be a dual threat. Uh, like I said, that's that's how his, his jersey got there to the Hall of Fame. Uh, he saw that he could really make it as a receiver. He had over a thousand yards for us receiving. So that tells you what kind of athlete he was. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, he didn't want to go back there and just be the quarterback. So that happened sometime and we, we all understand. And we just kept moving forward.
0: So in relation to him, you know, we saw going into the draft, Lamar Jackson was the guy that a lot of people said, oh, he's just a running back or he should try out at wide receiver. So what what is your opinion on certain players being labeled because they're athletic? You know, we saw with Tim Tebow people saying he should pl- he should play tight end because he was so big and he could move. But what is your opinion on certain players being labeled in certain ways? I don't think that's fair. You know, I, There's going to be somebody that takes a chance.
1: It's like Baltimore did with Lamar, and they've been rewarded for it. I mean, at the same time, uh, everybody has their critics. I do as a coach, players do, um, but you can't get caught up in that. you got to be able to look through all of that and see the special ability and how you as a coach would take that ability and make the most of it. So uh, that's what the real good coaches do, and sometimes the real good coaches put those little feelers out there so you don't drop that guy. Because <laughs> they want that they want it themselves. So uh, I think everybody knows talent when they see it. Uh, can they coach it? Can they get it to be what they know it should be? I think that's always the the million dollar question.
0: Oh, yeah. And in that draft, you know, there, there were a lot of good guys, really talented guys. And Baker Mayfield was the draft choice of the Cleveland Browns in that draft. Now, I personally I I thought that you really couldn't go wrong with any of the quarterbacks in that draft but what was the mindset heading into that training camp having multiple quarterbacks, you know, you have the number one overall pick, but you also have a guy in uh, Tyrod Taylor, who's been a starter, who's been a player in, in this league that had, um, that had opportunities in Buffalo and he was also the backup in Baltimore. I think you would have to
1: go back and look at the history of the Browns first. And, um, you know, prior to Tyrod being on the team and drafting Baker, We had three quarterbacks that played that never won a game in the National Football League. So from a confidence standpoint, Tyrod gave you instant credibility in the locker room. He was a pro. He had been in the playoffs, led a team to the playoffs, uh, had some success. And so we made a decision to trade for him. It was with the idea he would be a starter until whoever we drafted would come along. And we knew that not only was that player ready, but also the football team because Joe Thomas, who was gonna be a Hall of Famer, our left tackle, he was retiring. So to stick the first overall pick in the game, you know, and expect that from him really early, I didn't think that was fair. We didn't as an organization, we made a decision to start Tyrod and it just kind of happened organically. Tyrod got hurt, Baker goes in and now the rest is, has been history and he's played, he played really well in 2018.
0: For sure. And I, you know, I'm of the mindset you hear, you hear a lot from the media that, okay, you draft a guy number one starting week one. I'm not of that mindset because Aaron Rodgers sat on the bench for multiple years. Patrick Mahomes sat on the bench for his first season. So for me, as, as, as a, again, I'm not a coach, so, I'm, so I don't know what goes into everything. But for me, drafting a guy number one doesn't necessarily mean that they're a day one starter because everyone has different learning curves. Everyone, everyone's a different player. Yeah, you just said it. I mean, and the team has to be ready for that particular
1: player. What I mean by that, you have to have enough offensive players to support him. You have to have enough defensive players to support him and enough special teams players to support him because you want that guy to get wins. You want that guy to feel good about what he's doing. And he has to get his wins some kind of way. If it's wins in the game, great. But if it's wins because he's passing well, Joe Burrow, for instance, uh, uh, the kid at, at the Chargers, uh, that's what they're doing. They're throwing the ball extremely well, but they're not winning games, you know, but they feel good about what they're doing because they feel like they can compete and play at a high level in the National Football League. So you as a coach got to make sure those guys get their own personal wins, and I think that's really important.
0: For me, I look at an example like Tua um, Tagovailoa in Miami. He's, you know, he didn't start out week one. They went on the bye week. It was announced he was going to be the starter. And, you know, they've given him little by little, you know, it's hurt my fantasy team just a little bit, but you know they, they give him little by little and each week he's getting better and he's 3-0 and as a starter. Absolutely. And that's that's my point about getting him his wins, you know, his personal wins.
1: He feels good about what he's doing and the team does too. So what a tremendous setup. Now think about they would have played him opening day. It might not be like that right now. So I think it's it, it's a strategy. And it's got to work, you know, and and people question Coach Flores about not playing him at first. And then they question him about when he did make the decision to put him in. That's just part of it. That comes with it. There's always going to be dollars. You can't worry about that. And you just got to keep moving forward with what you know you need to do.
0: Definitely. So I want to change gears a little bit. And I want to talk about something that you set up in 2017 in the Hugh Jackson Foundation. What, what exactly is the Hugh Jackson Foundation? And can you tell our listeners just a little bit more about it? Yeah,
1: it's uh, a foundation that I have. Uh, and it's at HughJackson.org. And we deal with human trafficking. And uh, we are trying to do everything we can to impact this unbelievable tragedy that's happening to humanity. Obviously, it's everywhere. It's not prostitution, as people sometimes think. It's way different. And it's yeah, I mean, when I say everywhere is everywhere, every gender, uh, every uh, economic uh, situation you can think of, um, you know, families, friends. I mean, it's just everywhere. And we have a uh, we have a a um, residence that we partner with with the Salvation Army. It's at the Harbor Light District in Cleveland, where we house victims of human trafficking and do everything we can to give them the proper resources to get back into the mainstream. Uh, so they can get their lives back in order. Um, Obviously, it's uh, something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, We need to continue to improve it. We need to continue to impact it uh, because it is a huge problem. It's a billion-dollar industry, and uh, we got to make a dent in that, not for money, but for people. We're fighting for people, and I think that's really important.
0: I love that. And, you know, because of your uh, hard work, and I want to get this right, so I have it written down right here. In 2019, you received the Harvard Global Health Catalyst uh, Mental Humanitarian Award, and it says specifically for your dedication to awareness, education, and prevention of human trafficking with a commitment to supporting survivors and affected families through the multiple layers of recovery, including significant mental health support. What did receiving that award mean to you? It meant
1: uh, that my team um, had done a really good job that we had tried to impact uh, this tragedy the right way, uh, that we were doing anything and everything that we could to find a way to make it better in something that's really dark and that's not very good. And uh, to be recognized, it wasn't for me, it was just, like I said, from the team that I deal with, everybody who's touched uh, the Hugh Jackson Foundation, uh, everybody who supported uh, what we're trying to do, they all have a hand uh, on that particular award,
0: definitely. You know, th- this was probably one of my more fun interviews that I've done. Being able to talk to you, coach, is huge. Um, do, do you have an inst- You have an Instagram for the Hugh Jackson Foundation as well, correct?
1: Yeah, we have a yeah. It's uh, Hugh Jackson Foundation's our Instagram. My own personal one is Hugh Jackson Five, and then uh, the the uh, the email. I'm should say email. The uh, place where they could go find out more about. Human trafficking is HughJackson.org.
0: Awesome. So I've got one more question for you. Okay. You know, the entire quarantine situation has been crazy for everyone. You know, just finding ways to spend time. What did you do during your time in quarantine?
1: Did probably what everybody else was doing. One, trying to figure out what was going on, first and foremost. And then you start trying to find ways to better yourself. You know, uh, from a football standpoint, uh, from a human trafficking standpoint, from anything personal that I knew I needed to improve at, I tried to really map out a day for myself and make myself feel like I'm really involved in something, even though I was in the house, like everybody else and trying to be as safe as I could be. Um, But it was different. It was difficult. And I think we all have gone through that, but it forced us all to find new ways to do things. And I think... It's going to help a lot of us as we move forward, because we have found different avenues and different technology measures to to get the job done still at a high level.
0: Awesome. Well, I want to say thank you, Coach, for coming on with me. Um, this, this was a great interview. Uh, is there anything that you want to say before we wrap up? No,
1: I want to say thank you for the opportunity. I think you have a bright future ahead of yourself. I see your Dallas Cowboys stuff back there you might have to change teams here pretty soon (laughs) (laughs) but uh hang in there and keep uh, keep grinding at it and, and best wishes to you
0: thank you I appreciate that coach so for everyone listening that was Hugh Jackson um former head coach former offensive coordinator and hopefully we get to see you soon back in the NFL
1: absolutely thank you so much